This is the Marketing Podcast Network. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to introduce you to MJ Rose. New York Times, USA Today, and Wall Street Journal bestseller MJ Rose grew up in New York City, mostly in the labyrinthine galleries of the Metropolitan Museum, the dark tunnels and lush gardens of Central Park, and reading her mother's favorite books before she was allowed. She believes mystery and magic are all around us, but we are often too busy to notice. Books that exaggerate mystery and magic draw attention to it and remind us to look for it and revel in it. Rose's work has appeared in many magazines, including Oprah Magazine and The Adventuring, and she has been featured in The New York Times, Newsweek, Wall Street Journal, Time, USA Today, and on the Today Show and NPR Radio. She joins me today in Uncorking a Story to talk about her career and latest book, The Jeweler of Stolen Dreams. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, MJ Rose. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to have you, and I'm curious, uh, MJ, where does your story as an author begin? Oh, goodness. Um, well, it be actually begins very, very, very early. Um, I used to write poetry when I was a really little girl and short stories on my grandmother's uh, selectric typewriter and uh, wanted to be an artist. But everybody in my family thought I should be a writer. So then I became determined to be an artist <laughs> and went to art school at Syracuse University. And because there are no jobs for artists or very few, I went into advertising, which was actually a family business, not into my family's business. My grandfather was in advertising. And um, I be, was a copywriter. I started off as an art director, but I actually didn't really like it. And I became a copywriter. And that started to, I didn't really start writing until of all things, one of my accounts was Harlequin Books. And I was doing all these focus groups with them and working with them, doing television commercials for the romance novels. And the woman who was in charge would tell me stories about how much the authors were making and how much fun they were having. And I said, well, you know, how, what's it like to write one of these? I'd never thought about writing a book and I didn't read romances, but she gave me the Bible of all the instructions for how you're supposed to write a romance. And I sat down and I did it over the next year. And then I sent it to her and she said, you know, I think you're a really good writer, but you didn't follow a single instruction that I had in that book. So I think that you should write, but I think you're probably more in the mystery women's fiction world and uh, you, but you should keep going. And that's how it started. 
So something about you kind of in childhood, your family saw something in you uh, where writing was potential, but you it seemed like you rebelled against it a little bit. Um, what was it they saw in you and, and why do you think you rebelled against it? Well, um, cause I rebelled against everything that they said, <laughs> but I was just, um, I come from a very artistic family. Uh, my mother was a photographer. My grandmother was a painter. My grandfather was in advertising. My father was a businessman, but very creative and handled all the creative parts of the toy, you know, toy company. And, um, I was sort of trained to be creative. My grandfather was one of the people who invented brainstorming as a construct during World War II. Mm. And I was sort of his guinea pig to like prove how you could teach someone to be creative. So I grew up in New York and, and the little introduction, you weren't kidding. I mean, I grew up across the street from the Metropolitan Museum of Art and we went to the museum more than we went to playgrounds. And it just was really the whole milieu that I grew up in. You know, New York City is a pretty sophisticated place to grow up. And so the arts were just part of my life. Yeah. What, what was your grandfather's name? Dan Goldstein. Yeah, no, because I've read a lot. I mean, I, I work in marketing, uh, day job, uh, work in market research. I run focus groups for a living. Uh, oh. And I'm sure I've read something by your grandfather on brainstorming um, and creative problem solving. The he he only wrote part of one book and it was in the 1950s and I've looked for it and I have not found it, but it was at Buffalo University. He and a group of other people then started a whole program for teachers in yeah. the 1950s to teach teachers how to teach children to be more creative. Yeah, I know the the Creative Problem Solving Institute grew out of Buffalo. Yes, yes, and he yeah. was part of that. You're yeah. the only person I've ever met who knew what that was. Because I've been to the Sipsy conference. It was a oh uh, my, what's it, what was it called again? Because I've forgotten. Yeah, Creative Problem Solving Institute. Uh, How fascinating! Pronounced as yeah, pronounced as Sipsy. Um, yeah, yeah. No, so uh, yeah, they were they were there. I guess right after World War Two. Yeah, they were I, the I, early. They're the early guys in the whole field. He worked for Shenley, the liquor company, as okay. his as his day job. He was a vice president there. But but he and this group, this other group of men, they happen to be men, created that whole thing. Wow. Yeah, no, it's a I remember uh, I <laughs> so the father of triplets here. I left my family, I had three babies at home. Well, they were probably two or three at the time, and uh, a mentor of mine, a woman named Suzanne Hankey, who I'm indebted to for my career um told me she's like you have to go to this conference it's up in buffalo um and i said but it starts on father's day like i it started <laughs> on a sunday every and it always started on a sunday and it was always father's day and i'm like why does this thing start on father's day so i went to it um, and i felt so guilty leaving the family for oh. for that week because my kids were just so young at the time but it was very worthwhile um very worthwhile experience, but the, wow, this, this is uh, yeah. I don't care what you say or talk about the book. Just hearing that 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 exists still, and it, I have to look into it. Yeah, really interesting. Um, well, what can you share about the jeweler of stolen dreams? Well, um, I I I sort of write a lot of books because I want to do the research on the topic. Um, and writing is sort of, and that's how I got into historical fiction in the first place. I was writing contemporary fiction thrillers, but um, I, a friend of mine was doing research on a historical book and I got so jealous of the research that he was doing. And I was like, I'm going to write a historical just so I can spend a year doing research. So um, among other things, I just happened to love jewelry and uh, years ago started 
like really studying and paying attention to who jewelers were and started realizing how many amazing stories there were about all different jewelers going back to, you know, Louis Comfort Tiffany and Pierre Cartier and, and, and even going back further and started and realized that nobody really had explored them very much in fiction as real artists there. I've also done this with perfume. Um, people call perfume the eighth art and I call jewelry the ninth art because I think both perfume and jewelry are arts. I think jewelry is sort of like mini architecture. Um, so in the course of all my research, one of the artists that I came across is a woman named Suzanne Belperon who was born French, born in 1900, died in 1984, and was really the first famous female jeweler and an, an exceptional female jeweler, jeweler who never signed anything. Her, her stent, sentence was, um, my signature is my style, which is very true when you look at her work. And um, I started reading about her and Oh, this thing is so heavy. This is the only book. There, there are two books that feature her. There's no, no there's no biography. These are like amazing, you know, picture books oh, with wow. some details. This is some of her incredible work. And this is like in the 1920s. This is like way before anybody else was doing it. She was doing things that nobody else was doing. So I really became enamored of her. And I actually read this book and discovered that uh, during World War II, she was not Jewish. During World War II, a lot of artists left France. Musicians and filmmakers, jewelers, painters. When the Nazis took over, they left France. They didn't feel like it was their country anymore. A group of very patriotic people decided to stay in France because they felt that it was their home and they owed it to the French people. And she was one of the people that stayed. And she at the time was in her 40s and she um, had been the artistic director of a company called Boivin and she left there in 1933 to become partners with the gem dealer that she had gotten to know, Bernard Herz, who happened to be Jewish. And Bernard Herz and she started a company in 1933 where she was the artistic director and it was his company and he was the gem dealer and they started having an affair. She never divorced her husband. The affair lasted from 1933 until he was taken by the Gestapo in 1941. And um, she it was the second time he was taken. The first time she got him out um, by, you know, help, it, help from the resistance and people that she knew. The second time she tried to do all that again, but she didn't get him out. He was eventually sent to Auschwitz where he died in 1945. But she didn't know that for a very long time. So I became completely enamored and fascinated by her story. And oh, she was given uh, um, the French medal for the work she did in the resistance. And it was like a little, little tiny detail. And I started looking into, well, what did she do in the resistance? And there's nothing. You can't find out what she did in the resistance, which then became a challenge. What did this woman do in the resistance that she won a legion of honor medal for it, but nobody knows. So French, the French have privacy laws that are completely insane. You can't get anybody, you can't find out anything. So um, anyway, I decided I wanted to write a book where she was one of the main characters and, and, and pay homage to this woman who was such an amazing designer and so heroic. And in the process, I was like determined to find out what she did during the war, which I eventually did after two years of talking to everybody who existed. I found a great niece 30 miles from where I live oh after all that. 
I found her great niece who found who didn't know what she did in the war, but found out part of what she did in the war. Um, the book was mostly written by then, and I didn't change what I I think she did more than that. They think she did more than that. And this book is what I think she did during the war. And it's a mystery. And it, it's really about two stories, her story, what she did during the war and what happened. And then in 1986, a woman who is an auctioneer who comes across this Louis Vuitton trunk that is a secret compartment in it. And what she finds in the secret compartment leads her on a journey to discover Suzanne Valperon. Wow. And eventually uh, the next two of them. That's, uh, I, you know, the the um, the real art, that's a beautiful cover. I love yeah. the cover. Thank you. Cover. Um, but, you know, the, the art to writing historical fiction is sort of that balance between kind of what really happened and what could have happened and making it feel like it's all the same. Um, yeah, well, it's it's always been it's never been this difficult for me because I've never had a main character before. I've written about uh, Lewis Comfort Tiffany as a secondary character in one book, but it's just how he helped artists. And Pierre Cartier is a secondary character in another book, but it wasn't. It wasn't very detailed. It's the first time I've had a main character who's real, and I won't ever do it again. Because <laughs> when you write historical fiction, it is that balance where you're allowed to make up stuff, but you're not supposed to make up stuff that you could otherwise find. Or if you find it and you can change it, like I'm doing a book now where I change the director of the Victorian Albert Museum's name and her and her job. That's okay because I'm completely changing it. But you're not supposed to take a real person with a real history and really fictional make it up. You can fictionalize it, but you shouldn't change it. And I just found it very, um, very frustrating to not find out as much as I needed to and have to make up as much as I did. Yeah. So it was a bigger challenge than I realized. Well, you can always blame the French and their damn privacy, <laughs> laws, you know. Uh, tell me about your um, relationship with magic and, you know, why you include that as part of your story. Okay, hold on. Let me just get this. So this is my great-grandmother's crystal ball. My great-grandmother was French and came to America when she was 12 years old and married when she was 14 to a, a, a Jewish man who was a, um, a Talmudic scholar. And in the Talmud, uh, they believe in reincarnation. And he did. And my great-grandmother was a witch, a self-proclaimed witch. And she could see fortunes and the future in this crystal ball. And she used to predict things for us growing up that um, oddly and truly came true. She once saved me from being in a fire by calling my mother and saying, you better make sure she's not inside in a building today because it's going to burn. So it sort of was part of my background that we kind of took witchery for granted. I didn't know, it, you know, she'd call herself a witch. We lived in Manhattan. We weren't living in Salem in the 1600s. So it was just kind of a word. And Grandma Berger told the future. And it, it wasn't anything like anybody else I knew, but it also wasn't weird because that's what she did. So I was, it was always part of my life as was re the idea of reincarnation. And then when I started to write, um, I, I decided at one point that I really wanted to explore my heritage. And the more I started reading and learning about magic and reincarnation, I became pretty obsessed with that. This is like a long time ago now, like 18 years ago, really became obsessed with learning about it. And, and that's kind of where my philosophy with magic developed from. 
Yeah. I mean, you know, because I, I think about, you know, this this country of ours um, doesn't really have a great history with regards to magic and witchcraft. Uh, I <laughs> no. spoke about Salem before, but, you know, you don't really hear about it uh, positively, but it seems as if, um, you know, that certainly wasn't your experience growing up. Yeah. And, and there's so much about it that is positive and that, you know, un under other words. I mean, like, you know, when people say they're psychic, that's just another word for being, you know, a witch people that have great intuition that's witchery there's so many things that really fall into that i mean just just coincidences i think are magic i don't think i don't think there's any such thing as a coincidence that's meaningful i think that all that stuff is is important and and what you read about my biography i mean i think that there's magic in the seasons i mean i think that you can start looking at the world if you look at the world that way i mean my dog is magic you know i mean we're just completely surrounded with things that are special and amazing. And when you really look up, witches originally were just women that had greater intuition and knew how to use herbs to help cure people, but nobody understood what they were doing. So they made it into magic when it was really just, they were a little bit smarter. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I which also sort of sounds like bitch. And I think that that also is where it came from that, you know, strong women with opinions, people had to call them something. So well, there's also, you know, a patriarchal component to it, too, right? I mean, yeah, um, greatly. I mean, Salem was, you know, that was what happened in Salem. Yeah. But I, I mean, I've had people in my life, I, my, my good friend, Joe, who I used to travel a lot with doing, um, you know, videography work. One time I, I this very true story. We're sitting in Dallas at an Italian restaurant. We're making friends with the waitress, just kind of harmless flirting. And she walks away and he he whispers into my ear, she before the, before this night is over, she's going to invite us to her wedding this weekend. And I said, Joe, what are you talking about? And then sure enough, when she hands us our check, she says, I don't know if you guys are in town for this weekend, but I'm having a very casual wedding this weekend I'd love for <laughs> you guys to come. And I look at Joe and I'm like, how in the hell did you know? that was going to happen. And then stuff like that with him has happened on more than one occasion. It's uh, yeah. I can't explain it. Yeah. That's exactly the kind of stuff I mean. Yeah. Um. So uh, tell me when is the jeweler of uh, stolen dreams going to be released? February 7th. All right. So we've got uh, a little time before your, uh, before your publication date, as we're recording this anyway, we've got some time. I'll be sure to release yeah. this episode um, closer into the publication date. Um. Anything else you'd like to share about the book before I, I uh, before I turn the page and ask a couple of other questions? No, you can ask questions. I mean, I'm very excited about the book, but I like questions better than I like figuring out what I should talk about. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm always, you know, I always say this is about the story behind the story, your story. I'm curious um, just to get to know my guests a little bit better. I do have some questions about pop culture that I'll ask, um, which include uh, the first um when you were growing up, you know, I know you spent a lot of time in the Metropolitan uh, Museum, but uh, were there any um, TV shows that you were particularly drawn to as a kid? Oh, God, <laughs> I watched so much TV. The first thing that came to mind, I'm going to date myself, was the Patty Duke show, um, oh. Beverly Hillbillies, <laughs> Petticoat Junction. I loved Superman. I was really major TV junkie growing up. I also, we had a thing in New York when I was growing up called the Million Dollar Movie, which mm -hmm. was, um, there was a channel, it was channel 11 and the Million Dollar Movie picked one movie a day and showed that movie over and over and over again. And my mother and I had a favorite movie called 
portrait of Jenny, which most people haven't seen. It's an old black and white movie with Joseph Cotton and Vivian Lee, which is the most incredibly magical story about a young girl who grows up more quickly so she can be with this artist. It's mm-hmm. funny we're talking about magic because it's magical. And whenever that movie was on, which was probably once a year, my mother would let me stay home from school so we could just watch it over and over and over again. So if anybody can uh, find it's on YouTube. You can watch the whole thing on YouTube, Portrait of Jenny. And things like that had a really big impact on me. As a writer, I realize now I didn't at the time. But the the other movie that my mother and I watched all the time was called The Uninvited with Ray Milan, which is also um, you can find, which is a ghost story about a castle or, or a manor house in England. And when I look at that kind of television that I watched, I can really see how it helped me develop as a writer because they were about unexplained things. Mm-hmm. Um, what about now? Do you still consider yourself a TV junkie or no? Yeah, I really do. I read a lot, but when you're a writer and you read, you're sort of reading as a writer. But when I watch television, I can just kind of like phase out and I'm not, I'm not looking at, did she use the right word? And that sentence could have been done better. You just, I just am a, you know, a viewer. So um, what do I like to watch now? Oh God. Um, I don't, it's easier to tell you what I don't like. I don't like really lately since COVID, I don't like really dark, disturbing television anymore. Mm. I used to be able to watch things that were much darker, but I've gotten much lighter in my reading and watching. Like I read a lot of rom-coms now and I'll give a shout out to some, to some books that are really fabulous out there. Um, there's a book called Nora Goes Off Script. Oh yeah. I interviewed that author. Yeah. Uh, that was great. And um, Jean Meltzer, who who is Jewish and writes Jewish rom-coms that are unbelievable. Um, the Matzo Ball and Mr. Perfect on paper. She's great. And um, I also love reading the books by um, Beatrice Williams, Karen White and Lauren Willig. They write these books together that are fabulous. But um, but what ta- I mean, like I, I've watched, you know. Gossip Girl, the whole thing twice, you know, Gilmore Girls. I was one of my COVID things, but um, but I very eclectic, just nothing too dark and disturbing. Yeah. How about uh music when you were growing up and and now? Kind of juxtapose the two for me. What did you like to listen to then and now? Yeah. Well, my mother loved music, and I grew up in a house that had Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra playing all the time, and I was a typical kid of the late. 60s so I was like Beatles and then Moody Blue grew into Moody Blues and you know like like my television nothing too dark um but I'm big you know big um rock fan of of the softer stuff and uh, my husband is a composer singer and songwriter so um we have a lot of music in the house and and he's um so, and I also love classical music. And the other thing that I really um, listen to a lot when I'm writing or exclusively when I'm writing are Gregorian chants. Hmm. Um, every book I've ever written has been written to Gregorian chants. I put them on and they sort of help me slip into an alternative universe. I mean, it is so, certainly um, very hypnotic, right? The Gregorian chant. Yeah. Yeah, they do something, you know, th- there's a whole theory. I actually wrote a book about this. Have you ever heard of binaural beats? No. Oh, well, so one of my books is all about this, but, and I can't possibly explain it in any amount of time, but there are certain kinds of music that actually um, connect to how your your heartbeat and um, change how you feel. 
by virtue of the beat that they're using. And it's really interesting. You know, I can send you a link to some some of it, but it's called Binaural Beats. And I have that on music too. And it's very good to listen to when you're stressed out. But music, music gets inside of you and really does affect you. And there are a lot of people, I'm not against any kind of music, but there is a reason that, um, you know, rap music does change how you feel emotionally. It does it does make people feel things differently than what Beethoven symphony makes you feel. And that's different from what a Frank Sinatra ballad makes you feel. And all those things are really important. And I, I find them really fascinating, but that's a whole other book. <laughs> that's a whole other book. Um, you're, you're obviously a very accomplished uh, writer and author. Uh, I'm curious, do you still learn new things about yourself when you're, when you're going through a writing project? Um not about myself, but about writing. I mean, yeah. a lot of writers say that every time you sit down to write a book, it's like you've never written one before. And it's so true. Every single time, it's so difficult. It's like, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to create these people. I don't know how to figure out the story. And you can't believe you've done it before, especially for those of us who write very um, unconsciously. Like I write a very fast first draft first where I don't go back and read anything. People write differently. I only have a 20 point outline and I sort of just write through this messy draft. And when I go back and read that messy draft, I don't even remember writing most of it. Mm. It's like, where did that come from? That's an interesting idea or, you know, so um, so that happens a lot, but I, I'm not writing about myself. So and I'm not looking for um, knowledge for myself when I'm writing. I really want to tell a really interesting story and I really want to write about the period that I'm writing about. So I learn about all those things, but I'm, I'm not trying to be introspective when I'm writing about other people. When you say, you know, I'm having... bored by me at this point. <laughs> I, I'd have a hard time believing that you're boring by, by any stretch of the imagination. I bore myself. I'm, I'm oh. bo I know I'm, I would bore myself at this point. I mean, I've known myself a long time and it's like, okay, let's move on to all these other people now. Well, you know, from the time you 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 have that 20 point outline to the time that first draft is done, how much time are we talking about? You said you write quickly. Well, not since COVID, but it used to be that I could write a book in a year to a year and a half. Mm -hmm. With with actually, that's not quite fair because sometimes there'd be six months of research while I was doing a second draft of another book. But um the Jeweler of Stolen Dreams took two full years. It took much more time than anything else. Part of it might've been COVID um, because we all, being home, you'd think you had more time to write, but it was actually harder to write when you weren't doing anything else. It was all, you know, there was no input. It was all, you know, you weren't being in, inspired by anything. You're just yeah. sitting there. But um, it was the research that just, it wasn't, it wouldn't end and I couldn't find the answers. And so it really took longer to write that book. But yeah. generally it's 18 months is, is I'm happy if it's 18 months. All right. Is, and is that to a completed manuscript that's off to your agent or is that for the first draft? Oh, no, no. That's for completed, for completed. edited. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then if you could go back in time and whisper some words of advice into your younger self, what would you, uh, what would you tell your younger self? Buy real estate. <laughs> <laughs> And it did in, in Manhattan specifically, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Start picking up those places in the Lower East Side, which. Yeah, right. Yeah. Some solo lofts. 
Any other words of advice you might give to your younger self? Um, don't worry so much. Yeah, that's that, a, that's actually the the more important one. That's you a common worry about all these things that aren't the things that happen, and the things that happen aren't the ones that you ever worried about. So the whole thing is kind of pointless. Um, my husband once said, "Worry is like paying a premium a premium on an insurance policy that isn't due." Mm. That's a great. Uh, that's a great quote. Yeah, that's yeah. a great quote. Um, you ever wish you had your grandmother's talent to look into that crystal ball and see, see the future? I'm not so sure. Sometimes it was very scary. She didn't, it wasn't all, it was no happy stuff. I mean, the, the one thing that happened that I was talking about was I was in college and she called, I went to Syracuse and it was freezing cold and it was in the winter and she called my mother and she said, make sure that she stays out of any building today because she's going to, there's going to be a fire and she's going to burn. And my mother called me and she said, you know, I don't know what to tell you. Grandma Berger said you shouldn't go into any building today because there's going to be a fire and you're going to burn. And we all listened to her, you know, but it was like freezing cold. And I was in college. I was like, you know, 19 years old and I was not going to stay outside. So I just went on my normal, completely normal day. I got home from school and my phone rang and um, a guy that I was dating who went to a college nearby where I was keeping my paint, I was a painting major, where I was keeping my paintings because I was going to study their painting over the summer, called to tell me that his apartment had burned down and so had my paintings. Oh my gosh. And so I had burned, you know, all, like 11 of my paintings had gone up in flames. Wow. So I don't know that, I mean, in that case, you know, it's good to know bad things that are going to happen if you can stop them. But I would think it's terrible to know bad things that are going to happen and not be able to stop them. And for somebody as neurotic as me, living with the knowledge of bad things and not being able to fix them would be just torture. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I can absolutely see that. Well, let's uh, good things uh, include um, the jeweler of stolen dreams, which will uh, be coming out. Um, and let me, uh, let us know where can people connect with you? If, if people listening to this interview say to themselves, Hey, I want to get to know this MJ Rose a little bit more. Where, yeah. where would you suggest they really easy. My website is mjrose.com and um, all my social media links are on my website and it's really easy to find. All right. Well, there you go. MJ Rose, thank you for stopping by and corking a story and letting me uncork yours. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.